Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta. This is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Stories are at the heart of today's show. The vision statement of Atlanta's theatrical outfit is stories that stir the soul. The artistic director of theatrical outfit. Tom Key has just retired after 25 years leading the company. The popular actor and director joins us to look back on some of his proudest achievements. First, a story of coming to terms with loss. On June 13th, the Georgia Writers Association announced the winners and finalists of the 56th Annual Georgia Author of the Year Awards. The winner in the category of literary fiction is Zoe Fishman for her book, Invisible as Air. She joins us now via Zoom. Congratulations and welcome. Thank you so much, Lois. It is a true honor to be here. The main character in this story is Sylvie Snow, a 46-year-old married woman with a 12-year-old son, and she becomes addicted to painkillers. Why did you want to write about drug addiction? Well, when I was starting to think about my concept for this book, there was a lot of attention in the media about OxyContin and how it was taking over entire communities and ravaging, you know, all types of people from every class and strata and gender. And I wanted to start there. I wanted to take an upper middle class white woman and place her in peril because of an addiction she forms to the drug. You know, in marriage, in life, I think we all see what we want to see. And drug addiction often isn't acknowledged or seen simply because people are too busy looking at or thinking about themselves. So I kind of started from there. Did you have any personal experience with drug dependency? 
You know, I didn't. I certainly have an addictive personality, so I understand that tendency. The only experience I had with OxyContin, um, specifically Percocet, was after the birth of my two sons. I left the hospital with prescriptions <clears throat> both times, and gratefully, I wasn't in that much pain. But the drug itself just made me feel wonderful. I was so stressed out about being a mother, especially the first time, um, and balancing all these new responsibilities I had and this new identity, you know, as a mother. And I would take one of those pills and just immediately relax. So that's where I also, I drew from that experience. Because your descriptions are vivid. I'd love to read some of them if I could. Wow, yeah, sure. Two hours after swallowing the pill, you're right, Sylvie was an undulating ripple of goodwill. It was a miracle, really. Bubbles of goodwill coursed through her bloodstream, making her kinder, softer, more fluid. And then later, you're right, the pill began to work its magic slowing everything down, trapping time and space in jello. She felt buoyant and young, and the light inside or outside became almost comically ethereal. What leads Sylvie to take her first pill? Sylvie Snow suffered a, a stillbirth three years prior to the book opening. It was a very painful experience for her and her family, and it was never resolved. So she's been carrying this burden of repressed grief for three years. And it's not because her husband hasn't tried to speak with her about it, hasn't tried to seek therapy for both of them. It's because of her own stubborn nature. So she's, you know, stuffed it inside and hasn't accessed it. Her husband is a wannabe triathlete, and he falls off his bike one morning and breaks his ankle. And he's prescribed OxyContin for the pain, but doesn't like the way the pills make him feel. So he gives her the pills and says, throw them out. And it just happens to coincide with the anniversary of her daughter Delilah's death. And so she eyes the pill bottle and thinks, you know what, what's the big deal? How great can these be? So she just takes one, and that leads to a quick addiction. Hmm. And not only does she feel good, her husband and son welcome the change in her disposition. They're amazed by her sunny outlook and have no clue as to the reason for the change in her behavior. Would you introduce us to Teddy, her son, and tell us a little bit more about her husband, Paul? Sure. Teddy is 12 years old. He is an insightful, eccentric, artistic kid. He experienced the same trauma when he was nine. So he's holding that inside as well. And I think witnessing such an event gives children 
an intuitive and empathic nature that otherwise is hard to come by at that age. He loves movies. He dreams of being a director. He has a little notebook that he writes thoughts down and ideas for plots and screenplays constantly. He's a really good kid. He's, you know, plagued by the same issues a lot of 12 year olds are plagued with. I'm not popular, people don't like me. But most of all, he is comfortable in his own skin in a way that a lot of 12 year olds are not. Paul, her husband, is a very nice guy. He has his own demons. You know, after trying to speak with his wife about Delilah's death and being shut down, he starts to fill the void in his own life by compulsively shopping for his new exercise obsession. He doesn't know how to help Sylvie. She won't let him help her. She shut him out of the experience, even though obviously he was very much involved. And so really, again, something that starts as a very positive reaction to grief exercise turns into an addiction as well. I found Teddy's role especially captivating. What is the importance of his bar mitzvah preparation in this story? I wanted to place him on the precipice of such an event because I'm Jewish and there's so much, you know, the bar mitzvah is supposedly the moment when you transition from boy to man or girl to woman. And I wanted to put him in that place. I also wanted to explore when you, when you experience grief, when something traumatic happens to you, I think it's only natural or not natural for some people to question God. Um, and so he's in the middle of questioning God and you know why bad things happen to good people, just as he's supposed to get on the bima and and show the congregation his devotion to his religion and to God. So I wanted, I was really interested in exploring his thoughts as that day neared. Teddy's love for movies leads him to volunteer at a retirement home. What does he take away from that experience? Oh, so much. That was so fun to write about. I, you know, I'm a very structured writer for the most part. I don't start writing until I have an outline. And when that retirement home appeared, it came out of nowhere. And for a writer, especially like me, I love it when that happens because that means that the story has taken on a life of its own. And once I had that in place and the movie night, I was able to create these secondary characters that just brought me such delight to write, especially Morty. And Morty teaches him a lot about life and he takes with him knowledge about, you know, everybody has a story and tragedies happen to everyone. You just have to listen and you can watch sometimes people's response to tragedy is very inspiring. 
and that's a gift. And I think he learned that from Morty. There are some other great supporting characters. My favorite is a plucky girl named Crystal. (laughs) Crystal with a K? Yeah. First of all, I love an underdog. And second of all, I love to disprove people's initial reactions to others. And on the outside, she doesn't appear to be this smart sort of saint. And she is. And in effect, she saves Teddy and his family. So she's an unlikely heroine, but I would call her the heroine of the story. And she is also from a different class background. And that has brought out as well. I'm always interested in the way different classes interact and the invisible and not sometimes visible lines in the sand that are drawn around people. And I wanted to show a young girl who transcended all the initial reactions people probably had to her. Yes, she does. Sylvie, our main character, is pathetic, but she is not likable. What what is it like to write a character who is selfish and unpleasant? Do you worry that readers just will say, I can't stand this person? (laughs) Well, I think earlier in my career, I really did worry about that. But in this case, her vulnerability, the hurting, the fact that she's broken inside, I think that that's endearing and relatable, despite the fact that she makes these horrible decisions. As I wrote this book, I was going through a very difficult time in my own life, and I couldn't be selfish. I couldn't be a jerk. I had two young sons to be a role model for, and happily so. And so I kind of used Sylvie as my way to express all the things I might have wanted to say um, to people. And that was a lot. It was cathartic and fun for me. And I really enjoyed her response to a lot of the people that don't understand grief. And because they don't understand it, ignore it. And so using her to voice her opinion in regard to that was very, very helpful for me just getting through what I was getting through. Although she's able to say those things after she becomes a nicer person or becomes behaves more nicely because she's emboldened by the drug. Yes. The climactic point of the book occurs on Cumberland Island. Can you talk about the importance of that setting? Without spoilers, I leave it to you to navigate, so. Sure. Have you ever been to Cumberland Island, Lois? No, I've only read about it. It's such a magical, spooky 
life-changing place. Uh, my husband and I went there on, I guess, a baby moon before I had my second son. And it's a long drive. You get there, you take a ferry. There's nowhere to stay on the island. I think there might be one fancy hotel, but we stayed at an inn um, that the ferry took us back to. And there are all these ruins there from life long ago, plantations that were burned to the ground, these amazing trees and sand. It just feels, you can feel the energy of the past there. And then we walked and walked and walked. I was eight, seven months pregnant, seven and a half, and it was very hot and I was very unhappy. And we finally get to the shore and the water was so languid, I remember, and I just, you know, collapsed on the sand. And all of a sudden, these wild, feral horses appeared that didn't have any interest in us and walked by in a pack of three. And I was touched. I was moved by nature and wildness. And I always wanted to write about it. I, I was looking for a chance. And so I was very happy. And I knew when I started the book that that's where I wanted the climax to occur. And so I did. And I think the fact that they, you know, they're not in their comfort zone physically and emotionally makes for what I consider to be a satisfying climax in terms of their family unit. Yes. In fact, the cover art of the book is a scene on Cumberland Island. The overarching theme of this novel is coming to terms with death, specifically the stillborn baby girl the family had already named Delilah. Would you talk about how each of the characters deals with their grief? Sylvie refuses to acknowledge it. After the death of her daughter, she initially feels seen by her family, at least Paul and Teddy. And then she sees it as right after the three month stop, they went on with their lives. And so she became very angry and she internalized all that anger. And so she vowed never to speak about it again. She's got this, it's PTSD buried deep inside that she hasn't dealt with. Paul has also been incredibly damaged. He thinks about the what if all the time, if Delilah had survived. He tries to speak to his wife about it. She won't let him. And so, as I mentioned before, he takes exercise as his remedy, but because he hasn't dealt with his own grief, a shopping addiction rises out of what's initially good intent because he has this void. His wife is missing emotionally. The daughter that was supposed to be is not. Teddy's grief is not only grief for the sister that he imagined that he never got to have, 
but he's also grieving his family. His mother and father are not in tune. He doesn't really think they love each other. I think a lot of times parents don't give kids intuition enough clout. I know when your parents don't like each other, you know, it doesn't matter how old you are. The problems pervade the home. So his grief, I think that's what his love of movies grew out of. This idea of a happy ending, no matter what, um, is very appealing to him. Hmm. So I read about the sudden death of your husband three years ago. He was only 44 years old. Your little boys, your little boys ages two and five. And this book is dedicated to your father who died just last year. How did your own grieving inform this story? Oh, wow, so much. You know, when I started writing this book, when I submitted my idea to my agent, um, I hadn't written the manuscript yet. And it was always going to be about Sylvie Snow's stillbirth and her addiction to pills as a result. But I hadn't, I'd been fortunate enough not to experience trauma really on any level or on a very mild one at best. And as my idea, my novel was being accepted by my editor, my husband was dying. And um, it informed everything. It was my therapy. Unless you go through something like that, you really don't know how it feels. So it was my savior, this book. It really was. And then my father got very ill. And Morty became my way of saying goodbye to my father. Morty is very much like my father. So it saved me, this book. It really did. I, as hard as it was to write, I think that um, it saved me. Well, I think that many readers will find the catharsis and consolation that results in coming to terms with grief. And again, congratulations on winning that wonderful award for best Thank you so much. Best literary fiction. And I loved seeing that clip of you and your little boys <laughs> finding out the news and just <laughs> shrieking with glee. I think everyone should look at it. Thank you. I'm so glad I taped it just in case because it really is an encapsulation of our relationship um, as a family of three. And even though my husband is not there, he's there. And I think that's what I'm watching that back, watching that back, I felt him there. And that was, you know, when someone you love that much dies, you look for him or her everywhere. And somehow I saw him. 
And so it made that award even more special for me. Zoe, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Zoe Fishman is the author of Invisible as Air and winner of the Georgia Writers Association's Best Literary Fiction Award. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. Actor and director Tom Key is among those people who are referred to as an institution. The city of Atlanta and Fulton County are honoring his legacy with proclamations. In fact, Mayor Bottoms has designated June 30th as Tom Key Day. Mr. Key is retiring after 25 years as the artistic director of Atlanta's theatrical outfit. He is with us now via Zoom. Tom, welcome back to City Lights. Lois, thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Well, congratulations. The accolades are well-deserved and hard-earned. What were your goals for Theatrical Outfit when you began your tenure 25 years ago? Oh, that's a great question. I will say that I thought I could accomplish these things in about three to five years. (laughs) And after 25 years, I think, you know, we've just moved the needle forward a little better. There were several hopes that I had when I set out, I had been working for about 20 years as a freelance artist before I began at Theatrical Outfit in 1995. And what I hoped for, I knew that there was a world-class talent pool of artists here. And I wanted to focus I wanted to showcase, I wanted to work alongside and be inspired by and instructed by those world-class artists that had chosen to make their art from here. Mm -hmm. And secondly, I felt such an opportunity having grown up in Alabama and having moved to Atlanta after living in New York and Dallas going to school in Tennessee and briefly being in LA. I wanted to live in Atlanta because I love this city so much and I love this part of the world. I believe there's such a rich legacy that we have in the American South of literature and of music and in civil rights. And I wanted to give dramatic voice to that. And I wanted to do it from downtown. Well, downtown was enhanced tremendously when the Balzer Theater at Herons opened. Theatrical Outfit relocated to the Balzer Theater as its permanent home. What influence did that have? move have on you as an artistic director and on the company at large? It was like a dream come true 
we moved downtown to the Rialto first to prove whether or not we could attract a major audience to downtown. There were many voices saying that would not be possible. And I believe we could. After five years, we had to make a choice. It was not sustainable to stay at the Rialto in an 800 seat theater. We needed to have a permanent home. I believe very strongly that our mission being what it is, that this is an institution that needs to last. And so we looked at about 26 different properties. And I remember walking next to the Heron's building where I had never uh, eaten when it was a restaurant. I just knew it was this very handsome brick building right next to the Rialto and it had a for sale sign in it. And I thought, wow, wouldn't that be incredible just to move next door and it's, it looks like the perfect size, but that's just, that's just too good to be true. There must be something really wrong. (laughs) So uh, the fact that we were able to identify that as our best location uh, to make a physical man manifestation for the kind of intimate, high quality theatrical experience we wanted to give in the middle of the, downtown in the fairly popular district. And I did not know about the social capital of that building. And then I found out by meeting Ed Negri, who used to own it, inherited it from his father as a restaurateur. And then I got to know about and meet the Sheltons, Dr. Lee and Dolores Shelton, who were the first African-Americans to eat there in June of 1963. And that was the first restaurant to voluntarily integrate. And we got to know, uh, thanks to the Balsers, who had given the lead gift to purchase the Herons building, we got to know Lee and Dolores, and they and their children became patrons of Theatrical Outfit. So it was both a physical facility that would maximize the power of the theatrical art form, in its design, and it was an incredible space of social capital where relationships were built across bridges that heretofore had not been possible just to eat together. Mm-hmm. And now we are making it a place where we can partake of story together about one another and build those bridges. And I'll tell you one more thing that's really deep. On the night of our first performance at the Balser Theater at Herons, I was doing uh, a reading of Truman Capote's A Christmas Memory. And a Native American head of the Creek organization, uh, Earth Keepers, Tom Blue Wolf, joined me for dinner beforehand. And we went over to the theater And he said, I want to walk across the street with you and look at the building before we go in. So we did. And I stood there next to Tom Blue Wolf for a a long time while he was very silent, still looking at the building. And then he said, you have built in a good place because to my people, North America is referred to as the turtle. And we have always known this part of the turtle to be the heart of the turtle because of all the medicinal herbs my people used, most of them grew here. 
so that we knew that this was a place of healing. And I realized this is incredibly wonderful. It's full of wonder that mm. we are making this art form possible in a space that even before the action of fellowship between the Negris and the Sheltons for millennial, there has been a space where we can listen to one another's stories and heal. Very meaningful. Wow. I have a comprehensive list of all 25 seasons. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's quite a trip down memory lane. And the list reveals a wide-ranging repertoire. I know that some productions hold exceptional meaning for you, Tom, and I was hoping you would discuss a few, beginning with Lost in the Cosmos, the last self-help seminar. Wow. That was uh, Lost in the Cosmos in 1996. We've actually produced it twice, but... Um, that was a transformational book to me, Walker Percy's Lost in the Cosmos, the last self-help book. Lost in the Cosmos was not only a world premiere, but it was the first play that um, had never been done in a theatrical outfit before, and I had adapted and I was in it. It had an astonishing reception. <laughs> and what I loved about that was the number of people that got in touch with me after and said, you know, I was just laughing, laughing, laughing during that. And then I woke up the next morning and I thought, oh, expletive. <laughs> it, it, uh, it's a great example of the power, the dangerous power of comedy to without knowing it, I've always been interested in how cultural psychologists define laughter as what evolved as our primary signal of agreement. So through these opportunities, people were laughing over something that if it had been brought up in discussion, they would have had to take sides and got defensive but by laughing together, we say, you know, this is not the way we should be or the way we hope to be, but it's the way we are. And it can begin a serious conversation. And in fact, that is something that is essential to your mission statement, which is to produce world-class theater that starts the conversations that matter. Yes. So it has been an ongoing endeavor. The outfit presented several works by the South African playwright Athol Fugard. Would you talk about the 2009 production of his Blood Knot? Yes, that was a kind of a shifting point uh, for our theater. Kenny Leon has always meant a great deal to me. I was in the first play that he directed at the Alliance Theater with Bill Nunn and David Milford. And to this day, he remains one of my most important friends. 
I had gotten to at the University of Tennessee, where I got uh, finished my undergraduate degree and then got a master's in theater. Mm -hmm. uh, the late Sir Anthony Quayle formed a professional theater company in residence at the University of Tennessee called the Clarence Brown Theater Company. And the first production, they wanted to do a two character play to symbolize a student and a professional working together. And I was 23 years old and I was cast to play Morris in Athel Fugard's Blood Knot, which is a story of two half brothers who had the same black mother, but different fathers. And as a result, I have, my character has passed as white and apartheid South Africa. And after many, many years, I can't stand passing as a white and abandoning my brother. So I go back to live with him with this crazy scheme of how we're going to get out of there together. And it's an incredibly powerful play. And I was flown to New York with the director and the producer and spent a day uh, auditioning with all of these members of the Negro Theater Ensemble. Wow. And it changed my life. And Reuben Green was cast as my brother Zachariah. Fast forward almost 29 years. It's my third season at Theatrical Outfit that I'm planning. And I think we need to hear the story of Blood Knot. We need to have this conversation. Do we belong to one another or do we not? And when I say we, I mean the global community. So I called Kenny and I had no idea. Here he is, artistic director of the Alliance Theater with a very busy schedule. But I said, Kenny, would you do Blood Knot with me? And he said, yes. It was a great example of how this art form can move us forward because I, I think the devastating conclusion of that show when Zachariah asked Morris, what just happened? And I name it and say, it's the blood knot. It's the bond between brothers. And the fact of the matter, the greater matter the universal matter that that specific story touches on is that we are all bound together in the blood knot of humanity. You portrayed the artist Mark Rothko in a 2012 production of Red, a Tony Award-winning play by John Logan who won Best Play. I wondered if being married to an artist, the painter Beverly Key, helped to inform your portrayal. Oh, I'll say. How so? <laughs> well, when I take on, I, I have a, um, at the University of Tennessee, I had a wonderful acting theory passed on to me by a professor, Bernie Ingalls. That, it, that acting is revealing who I am. It's not pretending to be someone I'm not, it's revealing who I am as is appropriate to the character in the script. I can very much identify with being an artist, but I do not understand the visual art craft 
like my wife Beverly does and like my son Stephen does. And so I went to him because there was this one scene in particular where my assistant and I, who was played brilliantly by Jimmy Cosina, under the brilliant direction of David DeVries. And I said, there's a scene where we put on the overture. I'm pretty sure it was the Barber of Seville, the Marriage of Figaro. It was the overture to that opera. And during the course of that, we have to prime a canvas, a big canvas. <laughs> and I didn't have a clue the first time that we did that. I, I just, I was, I didn't have a clue, <laughs> did not have a clue. And um, they advised me and taught me how just to hold the brush. Oh. And it's like an athletic exercise and you have to attack it because you have to get it on in just enough time. The, and, and also the way that Beverly works in solitude, and she is so comfortable with solitude. And I am so in need of an ensemble. I am so dependent. I, I do nothing on my own as a theater artist. The entire theatrical enterprise and art form is one of collaboration. Beverly is so has so much capacity to be still in solitude and express what she sees and bring it into being. And so I became my son and wife's student and without their instruction and inspiration, I could never have dared to try to take on that role. Actor and director Tom Key. We'll return with the longtime artistic director of Theatrical Outfit after a short break. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Let's return to my conversation with the newly retired artistic director of theatrical outfit, Tom Key. Tom, I mentioned that looking over the 25 seasons was a trip down memory lane for Don and me. My husband and I had the pleasure of attending many performances. And something that struck me was the number of plays you presented that also serve as important 
history chapters. Without being a history lesson, they provided that role from the musicals Ain't Misbehaving and Mahalia to Fly about the Tuskegee Airmen and the Green Book and Thurgood. Did you set out to address historical chapters that were overlooked? I'm really curious about the past in order to understand and comprehend and engage in the present. And as an artistic director, I think the heavy lifting and the most major responsibility is to curate and bring forward the stories we most need to hear that will most evoke the most important discussion at that time. There's something that I have noticed that's interesting. And that is that even when I am looking forward 18, 12, 18, 24, 36 months in advance, usually about 18 months advance in the least choosing a season. On one level, I don't really know what's gonna be on the headlines most days. But what's really interesting, if I am engaged in the present and I do care and I'm staying current because I care, I wanna know how to be in this world. But one example that was really interesting to me was I chose the play, The Immigrant, to do, which was about the first Jewish family to escape from a pogrom in Russia in the early 20th century. And they ended up in a small Texas town in the first part of the 20th century. And they're the only Jews in that community. And a Southern Baptist couple kind of take them under their wing. And it was such a beautiful story. And I chose it and I had no idea. And I don't remember the exact year, but this was probably at least 10 years. It was a long time ago. And about months before we started production and during production, immigration was literally it was as present in the paper as not quite as present as COVID-19 or racial justice protests now, but it was, it was one of the leading topics. Immigration, immigration, immigration was something that was really important. I just looked back at that marvelous spreadsheet. Uh, the immigrant was 2006. Isn't that something? Wow. And Tom, when you mentioned the subject matter, it brought to mind another play that I thought was so meaningful, another play that was very powerful, and that was My Name is Asher Lev. Oh, yeah. About a Jewish boy who finds meaning 
and transcendence in a painting of the crucifixion. And again, an underlying theme of our common humanity or humanity perhaps rising above those things that separate us or make us different. And, and this has been a light motif for you as well. You are deeply spiritual, and certainly uh, your productions of all of the Christmas plays done throughout the year, uh, leading up to your signature Cotton Patch Gospel reflect this. Do you, do you feel a bit like the theater is your pulpit? When I think of pulpit, I think of sermon, and that's, that's not what we do. Uh, what I do see the theater as is a sacred space and for the whole community, and I am a steward of that space. I really love it that you brought that play up because that book, My Name is Asher Lev, was a profound influence on me about an incredibly long struggle that I had. I gave up the theater for three years as an undergraduate because I thought it had been a waste of time because what I was really supposed to do was to be a minister. Oh. And, um, I finally went back into the theater but that book, Asher Lev, was one of the huge influences on me. Now, I'm not Jewish. I am Christian. And I think it's a great example of the power of story. Even though I'm not Jewish, I saw my struggle about the freedom and the responsibility of an artist by reading that story about that Jewish artist who was painting crucifixes to the grief and horror of his traditional parents and community. The book had influenced me, but I've got to share with you a moment. It was under the direction of Mira Hirsch, and Brian Kurlander was playing Asher Lev's father. There was a line in it that I had never read. It had never registered with me, Lois. There was a scene when Asher says the name Jesus and Asher's father and Brian Kurlander revealed this rage that I didn't know existed in a human being, much less Brian Kurlander as revealed in playing Asher's father. And he's for bade him to ever say that name again in his household because he said, do you understand how many millions of our people have suffered because of that name? And my life was forever changed. Of course. It was forever changed. I, and it gave me a means like only this art form can do to experience life from another viewpoint and understand that what we have in common is so much more important than what divides us. And again, 
that we do belong to one another. Tom Key, congratulations on 25 years at Theatrical Outfit of presenting stories that stir the soul on an even greater number of years as an actor and director. And I wish you the best of luck in your next act. Lois, I really appreciate that. And I want to thank you because I was leaning on your voice long before I became artistic director at Theatrical Outfit. I really appreciate being with you today very, very much. Thank you. Veteran actor, director, and newly retired artistic director of Theatrical Outfit, Tom Key. You've been listening to City Lights a celebration of the arts and the ways in which we express ourselves creatively. We'll be back tomorrow at 11 a.m. with Top Chef All-Star and Atlanta favorite Kevin Gillespie. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Thanks also to Stephen Key. Kevin Rinker is our engineer, and I'm Lois Reitzes. Thanks for listening to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.